Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Casey Michelle about his new book, American Kleptocracy. The book details how the United States has become a secrecy haven and the preferred destination for the illicit funds of foreign dictators, kleptocrats, and other criminals. Casey is an investigative journalist whose work has appeared in Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, The Atlantic, The New Republic, The Washington Post, and The Guardian, just to name a few. And he has also spoken on the BBC, NPR, MSNBC. I hope you find the podcast informative and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Well, I'm really excited to be here today with the author of American Kleptocracy, Casey Michelle. Casey, welcome. A pleasure to have you. Kieran, it's great to be here. So let's just get right into this. I mean, I think the book is amazing. I really liked the book a lot. And I think it did a couple of things, including lay out a little bit of a history of how we got to where we are in the U.S. becoming such a major receptacle uh, for offshore and illicit funds, as well as looking forward and what some of the solutions are and how this continues to happen and evolve. So, you know, if it's possible, is there a 60-second, and I won't hold you strictly to 60-second, kind of history? How did the U.S. get here? Uh, you know, states falling over themselves to get illicit funds or potentially illicit funds. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, look, Karen, I'll try to keep this to 60 seconds, but it might spill over a, uh, a little bit. I mean, I think at the one level, obviously, we're talking about the United States of America, still the global leader in broader anti-corruption, anti-illicit finance efforts, especially out of Washington. You know, think of things like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Think of things like even the um, you know DOJ's dedicated task force to uh, recovering the assets of kleptocracy itself. You have all these policies in Washington, D.C. that make the U.S. the clear leader in this space. But when we're talking about this transformation, transformation in the U.S. When we're talking about, again, as I argue in the book, the transformation of the United States into the key node for modern money laundering services for kleptocracy writ large, we're talking about a couple things. You know, one of the things that you just mentioned was the role of states, right? We're still talking about a federal polity. The U.S. is still a country made up of 50 separate states that all have separate sovereign oversights of, in this case, financial architecture and financial related policies. So think of states like Delaware, think of states like Nevada, think of states like Wyoming or South Dakota, these smaller states, these relatively overlooked states that over the past few decades realizes there's been this absolute geyser, this absolute explosion of many times illicit wealth emerging from post-colonial or post-Soviet or post-communist states looking for a home, looking to be kept safe, looking to be washed clean, and doing so with a specific type of or specific number of types of financial secrecy vehicles. These are things like anonymous shell companies. These are things like anonymous trusts that, again, have really come home to roost in these smaller states, these places like Delaware, Nevada, Wyoming, that all pursued, as political scientists call it, this race to the bottom in crafting as much anonymity, as much ease of access, and as much protection as possible for those funds, regardless of their source. Uh, beyond the states, though, again, it's not just the states we're talking about. You also have a specific number of American industries.
countries that also enjoy and that have also implemented, especially through lobbying in Washington, the kinds of pro-secrecy and in many ways pro-laundering policies that allow all of this illicit finance to swirl right in the United States of America. So we're no longer talking about just shell companies or trusts. Now we're talking about things like real estate. Now we're talking about things like luxury goods. Now we're talking about things like private equity and hedge funds or things like artwork or the antiquities uh, market. I mean, there's a whole range of American industries that have ballooned on the illicit wealth that has come into the United States over the past few decades, looking again to be kept safe and to be washed clean, stripped of any identifying information from its source so no one can actually track it back to how those funds were initially gained in the first place, only knowing what those funds have transformed into right here in the United States. And then beyond that, you have this whole enabling class of professionals. You have lawyers and law firms, real estate agents, accountants, trust providers, et cetera, et cetera, that again, can go about their work, their kind of daily business, allowing and incentivizing the inflow of these ill-gotten gains with, again, no due diligence checks, no anti-money laundering requirements whatsoever, again, through a series of exemptions or just through the fact that that kind of anti-money laundering architecture was never implemented in the first place. You got a lot into that uh, time. That I maybe put too much uh, pressure on you there for speed. So That's okay. <laughs> Let's talk, though, a little bit. Let's drill down a little bit from what you're talking about here. One of the things I learned, I didn't realize that New Jersey had started this all, but it was shamed out of it. So we've talked a little bit about the states, and you know, I think there's real issues about how that gets dealt with other than we're trying to deal with it at the federal level. But as you said, at the federal level, there's also these issues of industries that have lobbied for treatment of not having to have any suspicious activity reporting requirements or any responsibility for charting these kinds of you know, illicit funds. I want to go after the big one, the American Bar Association. Lots of members in Congress. I remember seeing this article by the head of the American Bar Association that lawyers don't rat out their clients. I found deeply offensive, actually. Tell me about that. That's a great question. You know, we're talking about these enabling classes of professionals, again, these real estate agents, trust providers, uh, those who are selling the luxury goods, those who are running the private equity and hedge funds. You know, they have this wide range of uh, leeway as it pertains to working with whichever clients they would like and then beyond that, which, with whichever source of funds they would like. But as I argue in the book, and certainly as I see it in this discussion with you guys right now, there is one kind of class of professionals in the United States of America that is kind of the first among equals of these enablers. And that is American lawyers and American legal firms. And I will say we saw this most especially in the release just two months ago of the the Pandora Papers, which again was this unprecedented look into uh, uh, the offshoring world and the broader world of financial secrecy and illicit finance that really shone a light on how clearly American lawyers and uh, law firms have transformed into effectively these one-stop shops for whichever clients they would like to work with. And again, I, I'm not talking about simply representing these clients in, in court. Court, right? I'm not going to go out and argue that everybody isn't uh, do their fair shot in court. I'm talking more specifically about this explosion in the range of services that American lawyers and legal firms provide. Uh, we're talking about everything from uh, PR services and now effectively working as lobbying shops to then beyond that setting up uh, the shell companies for their clients or setting up the real estate purchases for their clients or helping their clients navigate, again, the kind of porous anti-money laundering structures that already exist in the United States of America, helping their clients navigate around those. Well, then beyond that, actually pushing pro-offshoring, pro-financial secrecy policies in and of themselves. 
themselves. And I, I don't know that there's a better group that kind of encompasses that reality than the American Bar Association. You know, as listeners may be well aware, the American Bar Association spent years and years pushing against the basic passage of legislation that would ban the formation of anonymous shell companies in the U.S. And again, anonymous shell companies being the basic bedrock of these broader illicit transnational financial networks. If listeners do want a very, I suppose, entertaining, if depressing viewing experience, there was a wonderful Sting video report from Global Witness, the uh, the pro-transparency civil society group, a few years ago, going to a number of high-profile American lawyers and legal firms posing as uh, an African oil or mining minister, simply asking them how to navigate America's anti-money laundering policies. And it turns out that almost every one of these lawyers was more than happy to take on these clients and help them, again, set up these shell companies, set up these purchases, create these financial networks themselves. As memory serves, there's only one lawyer who turned them away. Who became kind of outraged. Yes, exactly. And I think it uh, kind of typifies the American Bar Association's transformation that the then president of the American Bar Association was one of the lawyers who was more than happy to help set up those financial secrecy networks, to help work with that client to circumvent and navigate around America's anti-money laundering policies as they exist. I don't want to dwell too much more on the American Bar Association, but also, you know, I think that the book uh, talks about some specific cases of money laundering and hiding the assets of kleptocrats, uh, including the Teodoro and Guma Obiang, how escrow accounts from his lawyers, attorney client accounts are used to hide money and to make these transactions work. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I think that case study of Mr. Obiang, who again is the son of the longest standing dictator in the world, this small Central African country of Equatorial Guinea, by all appearances, Mr. Obiang is the kind of dictator in waiting, being groomed by his father to replace him eventually, and uh, who came to the United States of America for all of his laundering needs. Again, Equatorial Guinea is an oil-rich country. They have more money. This family, the ruling family, has more money than they know what to do with. And the son came to the United States. He purchased the mega mansion. He purchased the private jet a fleet of supercars, doing all of this while uh, also using financial secrecy networks set up specifically by one of his uh, American lawyers uh, who, again, knew how to navigate around America's porous anti-money laundering policies. The only reason we know all the details about Obiang's case study in and of itself, and as, as one federal investigator described them to me, this guy is really the poster child of kleptocracy, is because we had a number of high-profile Senate investigations looking at Obiang's American network and specifically looking at the role of his American lawyer and all the emails that were shared and all the accounts that were used and the entire range of purposes uh, and efforts at setting up these shell company accounts to move, hide, launder this money and then transform all that wealth into all these incredible assets outside of Equatorial Guinea and beyond the reach as far as anyone was aware at the time of any investigators whatsoever. The only reason that it ended up falling apart is because Mr. Obiang got a little bit too big for his britches and began calling a little bit too much attention to himself. If he had kept a lower profile, he would have been able to get away with all of this, presumably scot-free. Well, and I think it's also, uh, you know, easy or important perhaps to recall that, you know, uh, Equatorial Guinea is this impoverished country in which people are suffering as a result. This government is also a government that tortures its citizens. It's pretty sad. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. Let's talk a little bit about, too, the other area, real estate. And I kind of want to make that concrete in talking a little bit about one of the big real estate organizations that just happens to be associated with the former president, President Trump. This is a real estate organization that routinely took money in which the profile of the account sending it suggests potential money laundering, right? I mean, talk to me a little bit about this. 
Yeah, look, so we're talking about American real estate right now, both both residential and commercial certainly have both been incredible fonts for or destinations for all of this illicit wealth coming into the United States. Much of that has to do with the two decade old exemption from basic anti-money laundering policies that American real estate uh, enjoys. That, that was an exemption that was in place after the passage of the, the Patriot Act uh, back in 2001, which as listeners may remember, really effectively cleaned up the American banking sector and targeted a number of other American industries. Unfortunately, those other industries then received exemptions that were supposed to be temporary but are now two decades old so they're not quite temporary whatsoever but you know no surprise that one of the key industries that has profited from that transformation is luxury real estate and who more do we associate with luxury real estate than the former president Donald Trump himself and as we know through a number of investigations Trump properties the Trump organization itself has been a destination time and again for kleptocratic figures from around the world looking to hide and launder their money we're talking about figures from the post Soviet space from places like Russia and Kazakhstan, places like Ukraine and Azerbaijan. We're talking about places in sub-Saharan Africa like the Republic of Congo. We're talking about places in the Caribbean and South America. I mean, you name it. And we have found figures. We have found dictators. We have found autocrats, their families, their inner circles that have used Trump properties specifically I'm sure they're using other properties elsewhere, but especially Trump properties to hide and launder their wealth. And we know that this continued through the Trump presidency itself. So when, just to pull back a second, what we're talking about is the former president's business, the former president's company, opening its doors to illicit finance from around the world because they have no basic anti-money laundering regulations whatsoever. And what we have seen is that the dictatorships, the autocrats, their families, their inner circles are more than happy to plow some of their money through, whether it's America shell companies or American trusts directly into Trump properties themselves, doing it anonymously, at least as it pertains to the rest of us, not having any idea who these figures, who these folks are, but nonetheless bankrolling the president's company. And we know that this continued through Trump's presidency itself. There was a wonderful report a few years ago looking specifically at the ruling family in uh, the Republic of Congo doing exactly this and what impact that has on American policy, what impact that has had on uh, executive actions or White House policy, we still don't don't know. We only have a small, small, small idea of just the impacts and just the effects that this has actually had on White House policy, let alone what continued impact this may have on Trump's 2024 campaign moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. You make the argument in the book, and I don't know if there's much more to be said about that. You kind of said a lot just in what you've said, but uh, you kind of make the connection of the relationships that he had that brought this money into his real estate empire are relationships that were tapped than to pursue his presidential campaign and, and onward. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I don't think it's any surprise that somebody who was overseeing a luxury real estate empire in the 1990s and the, through the 2000s was able to use that reality, use that position to build a financial war chest that ended up launching him to, as we saw in 2016, not just the Republican nomination, but the presidency itself. I think there are few figures that have profited as much from this American transformation, this transformation of the U.S. into the uh, destination country for so much of this illicit wealth. Again, thanks to things like shell companies, thanks to things like real estate, private equity, hedge funds, et cetera, et cetera. There are few figures that have profited as much as Donald Trump himself. Obviously, he wasn't creating the policies. He wasn't the one in Washington crafting the exemptions, crafting the loopholes. He was simply one, along with his company, that took advantage of all of that incentivization, that entire structure that... Uh, it, 
unsurprisingly brought all of these billions and billions of dollars into the U.S. You know, as far as we're aware, uh, according to the best study that we have, $1.5 billion in sales before 2016 matched money laundering profiles regarding Trump organization, Trump properties. That is, you know, over a billion dollars in suspected money laundering was taking place before 2016. We still have no idea what the actual number is after Trump's ascension to the presidency, let alone where things are right now. So in addition to the lack of uh, oversight in areas like real estate and, and the, the role of attorneys in transactions, one of the things that I, again, as I said in the beginning, that I liked about the book was that it's kind of a comprehensive history, and it also looks at, forward at some new issues. And among those new issues are the role of hedge funds and private investment companies as becoming vehicles for money laundering. Describe some of that. Yeah, sure. No, Karen, one of the things I mentioned just a moment ago was this two-decade-old exemption from basic anti-money laundering checks that real estate enjoys. Just so happens it's the same exact exemption that private equity, hedge funds, and other private investment vehicles uh, enjoy. You know, if we go back to the early 2000s, private equity hedge funds are not nearly what they were right now. When this exemption was initially issued, it was something of an afterthought insofar as you know there wasn't any serious inflow coming into, financial inflow coming into these industries in the U.S. Obviously, in the last two decades, especially over the last uh, 10 years or so, we have seen these industries absolutely uh, explode into this supernova of trillions of dollars in assets. You know, The best estimate for private investment vehicles in the U.S. is about $11 trillion in assets. And all of that, again, coming without any basic anti-money laundering or due diligence checks whatsoever. Again, there's this whole incentive structure for anybody with any bit of dirty money burning holes in their pocket to seek out, to search out American real estate, American luxury goods, or in this case, American private equity and hedge funds. This is a little bit different in terms of laundering in and of itself. This isn't immediate laundering. This isn't something you put in on Tuesday and pull out on a Thursday. You know, private equity hedge funds often obviously have to keep those investments there for years at a time, but that doesn't shift the incentive structure whatsoever. That just lengthens it out in and of itself. And what we have seen over the past, especially year to 18 months or so, is a final realization of the reality of this transformation of private equity and hedge funds in the U.S. into potential, if not realized, laundering vehicles in themselves. Uh, there was a, um, an FBI report that came out just last year looking at some of the case studies that have already come forward from American private equity and hedge funds themselves. You have things like Russian organized crime. You have things like Mexican cartel heads putting their money in American private equity hedge funds. Again, doing it anonymously, but then being able to pull out those assets on the other side perfectly legitimately or using those vehicles to invest elsewhere themselves. There was a, um, a wonderful story I was able to share in the book. Well, maybe not wonderful, but certainly depressing. Just a few years ago, it turns out that one of the private equity firms overseeing all of the voter infrastructure database in the state of Maryland, the, you know, the entire state, Turns out that private equity firm was bankrolled by a Russian oligarch close to President Putin. And all of this was after the 2016 interference campaign. Now, thankfully, there were no votes changed, at least as far as we know of. But that shows the paucity of information that shows just how wide open that a Russian oligarch can secretly be bankrolling a private equity firm that oversees all of the voting infrastructure for an American state. I mean, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of just how deep these connections, these financial networks have begun intersecting with American private equity and hedge funds. I wouldn't be surprised if in the coming years we see increased regulations, increased oversight pertaining to money laundering in these sectors, but we're certainly not there yet. Well, I mean, that's a very good point, And it kind of goes to the way that you end the book and you're speaking there a little bit optimistically about uh, at least where the momentum is for regulation. AML Act of 2020, 
is going to bring antiquities dealers into the regulation area and talk about examining other areas for regulation, including art houses and, and that sort of thing. So there's that. And, and you might want to say something about that. But also, that act still has, you know, people are kind of looking at that in a sober way. Certainly, my listeners are seeing that after initially embracing it almost kind of unreservedly, it looks like there's going to be a number of exemptions that are an issue. Are you still optimistic? And, and how do we, you know, go after those exemptions? Sure, sure. I, I Karen, I mean, I, I suppose the, the short answer is, is yes, I am still optimistic while, while realizing, recognizing that that optimism is absolutely tempered, not just by things we've seen in the last few years, but by the broader trajectory of, of where things have gone in the anti-money laundering, you know, anti-corruption fight in the past. Again, think back to things like the Patriot Act, which was this sweeping once-in-a-generation reform that was obviously eventually watered down because of exemptions for things like real estate or private equity. And I, I don't think there's any reason to not have those concerns as well for the uh, Corporate Transparency Act, obviously, that we saw passed earlier this year, which was, again, in and of itself a once-in-a-generation sweeping moment of reform and promise in and of itself. But now we are beginning to get into the actual weeds, the actual details of just which companies, just which corporate structures are going to require transparency, who's going to collect that transparency, what are the actual bare minimums for that transparency, for those ownership structures. I mean, again, we're waiting to see how those exemptions will shake out and how all those details within the rulemaking process itself will, will, will shake out. So yes, I'm, I'm suppose I'm cautiously optimistic about where things are going. I cer certainly not, not forthrightly uh, you know, optimistic across the board, but I will say the signs do continue to point in one clear direction for increased reform, for increased oversight, increased regulatory interest in making sure all these broad anti-money laundering loopholes and exemptions are finally, finally, finally closed. I mean, I know, uh, you know, Karen, we're speaking in, in early December, just this month, the White House released its much anticipated strategy for countering corruption. And again, so much of this is rhetoric. So much of this is simply making sure they are saying the right things. But at the end of the day, they are saying the right things about things like real estate, about things like private equity, about things like lawyers, about things uh, like luxury goods providers, antiquities dealers, art house uh, uh, dealers, et cetera, et cetera. In the entire range of industries and policies and loopholes, we finally have a White House that is putting pen to paper in highlighting just how core these issues are to the broader fight against money laundering and illicit finance. And beyond that, how central these American policies and industries uh, are to this kind of flowering that we've seen, this explosion that we've seen in the last few decades in illicit finance and transnational corruption. Now, again, we have to wait to see how these policies actually shake out. We have to see what the language actually says. We have to see what the actual structures end up being. And there is far, far more work that remains and far more work to be done. But, you know, right now, speaking at the end of 2021, I guess I can't help but be optimistic about where things are going. I'm certainly very, very uh, grateful for how far things have come in just the uh, the last year. And I will say I don't necessarily see that momentum slowing anytime soon. And I'm very excited about what next year has in store in this broader fight against modern kleptocracy. Well, I think maybe that's a good note to end on. I know you, you're optimistic in the book that the national database for corporate beneficial ownership, that that'll eventually open up to more people than just law enforcement and some of the restrictions on that. And again, some of these areas where they have allowed entities to not report that we sort of assumed would report into the corporate beneficial ownership base, that they'll get included. So I, I think that's a good place to end in terms of also maybe kind of a call to action. Uh, our, our listeners out there are people who, with without being involved in specific policy and everything, we certainly want this thrust towards transparency. 
Well, thanks so much, Casey. Thanks so much, Karen. Great to be here. And congratulations on this great book. Oh, thank you so much. I, hopefully it's it's worth a read. Hopefully read smoothly. And I will say, despite how depressing the topic of transnational money laundering can be at times, hopefully there's some fun stories in there as well that at least get you through it. I think it's a good read. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Casey Michelle, investigative journalist and the author of American Kleptocracy. I hope you found what you heard compelling and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.